0: The state is the health of war. This is the result of having unique access to a central bank, the recognized right to collect money involuntarily through taxation, the ability to conscript men into fighting against their will, a monopoly on compulsory education, and a legal double standard which allows mass murder to go unpunished under the guise of foreign policy. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone in any the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am James joined by James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Become a member of CorbettReport.com for just $1 a month. If you're interested in his videos, check out the World War One conspiracy and the bystander effect. James, how's it going?
1: I am doing great. And Keith, I always say it, but it's always true. I love your opening quotes and the fact that you always pull really interesting videos out of my archive to recommend to people that people probably forget about so yes the bystander effect yeah good good call
0: and uh always check out the uh corbett report weekly newsletter i was checking out the recommendations and james mentioned one of my favorite history books ever churchill hitler and the unnecessary war today we are going to go over 10 things we learned we're each going to give five james anything uh the audience needs to know before we get started I think not.
1: I think it'll be self-explanatory once we get into the the woods of it.
0: Awesome. What is the first lesson you learned from Churchill, Hitler, and the unnecessary war?
1: All right. Well, I wanted to uh, draw attention to uh, the section in this book on the starvation blockade, which people may or may not be familiar with from other work. But uh, in this chapter, basically, uh, uh, Buchanan is laying out what is the the Treaty of Versailles? What was this bum deal? And why did the Germans sign it? Because it was an inherently crazy deal, Uh, basically uh, uh, winners justice, victors justice. So why did the Germans sign? And he writes that Germany faced invasion and death by starvation if she refused. Uh, with her merchant ships and even Baltic fishing ship boats sequestered and the blockade still in force, Germany could not feed her people. When Berlin asked permission to buy 2.5 million tons of food, to buy 2.5 million tons of food, the request was denied. From November 11th through the peace conference, which took place the next year, the blockade was maintained. Before going to war, America had denounced as a violation of international law and human de- decency the British blockade that had kept the vital necessities of life out of neutral ports, if there were any chance the goods could be transmitted or transshipped to uh, Germany. Uh, but when America declared war, a U.S. admiral told Lord Balfour, "You will find that it will take us only two months to become as great criminals as you are." And uh, he goes on in this section to talk about the the resulting starvation uh, of. Uh, many, many people, in fact, uh, five uh, t- talking later in the chapter, he says, five days later, the Daily News wrote, the birth rate in the great towns of Germany has changed places with the death rate. It is tolerably certain that more people have died among the civil, civil population from the direct effects of war than have died on the battlefield, end quote. And this story, as I say, may not be new news to people, especially people who have all followed my previous recommendation on Prolonging the, uh, the Agony by Doherty McGregor, who had a lot to say about this. And the fact that, newsflash, World War I did not end on November 11th, 1918. It just entered into a sort of new phase of the war, which was designed to completely crush Germany and subject them to victory's justice. And I think Buchanan does a good job of laying that out here.
0: Excellent. My first takeaway, because I, I read this probably five years ago or so, and I could have sworn that Germany declared war on Britain both times in Operation Takeover World by first Wilhelm and then Hitler picked up the mantle. Turns out uh, I had just always thought that for no reason. Here is Henry Asquith, Prime Minister, August 5th, 1914. We have received from our minister at Brussels the following telegram. I have just received from Minister of Foreign Affairs, that is the Belgium Foreign Minister of Affairs, a note which the following is a literal translation. Belgian government regret to have to inform His Majesty's government that this morning's armed forces of Germany penetrated into Belgian territory in violation of engagements assumed by treaty. That is... Uh, Asquith's declaration of war against Germany. This was a result of a treaty in 1839 where the British claimed the right to intervene on behalf of Belgium if Belgium were to be invaded. When it comes to the Second World War, not only was it not Churchill, I, I, my original guesses were Hitler declared war and then Churchill declared war, Turns out it was actually Neville Chamberlain, the guy who's always called the stupid appeaser who just sat around and never did anything, of course. September 3rd, 1939. Chamberlain says, this morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland... A state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. My mind was blown when I came across that information. James, what is the second one you have for us?
1: All right, good choice. And I think that links in with my second choice, which is about um, the assurances that were given by Britain to various countries in Europe um, in the lead up to World War II. So people who saw my World War 1 conspiracy slash wwi will know that it was a interlocking series of the Triple Entente and these other alliances that led to the machinery of World War 1 being in place years before World War 1 broke out. Similarly in World War II there were a number of breathtaking reassurances and uh and guarantees that were given by Britain to various countries in Europe that people at the time knew this is insane. Why are we defending? Why are we giving our pledge of assurance to these countries? So uh, uh, Buchanan lays this out in uh, a chapter that you'd have to read the whole context to really get the sense of it. But I'll just read on on March 31st, 1939, Chamberlain, uh, Neville Chamberlain, rose in the House of Commons to make the most fateful British declaration of the 20th century. Quote, I now have to inform the House that in the event of any action which clearly threatened Polish independence and which the Polish government accordingly considered it vital to re- resist with their national forces, His Majesty's government would feel themselves bound at once to lend the British government all support in their power. They have given the Polish government an assurance to that effect. And that's the end of that quote. In, other, in words drafted by Halifax, Neville Chamberlain had turned British policy upside down. And that, that really is flabbergasting for people who are uh, at, at, in any sense familiar with the, the sort of the, the foreign policy of Britain at that time. That was a huge shakeup in uh, the relations that existed at that time. And he goes on later in the chapter to talk about it wasn't just Poland. Um, here is a list of the war guarantees that the British government issued in that springtime of madness in 1939. On March 23rd, Britain declared she would intervene militarily to stop any German attack on Holland, Belgium, or Switzerland. On March 31st, the British gave the war guarantee to Poland. On April 13th, Britain gave war guarantees to Romania and Greece, and on May 12th, Britain concluded a treaty of mutual assistance with Turkey. So, Clearly, the pieces were being set that basically anything, anywhere in any of these states would trigger the World War II, which is exactly what eventuated. And if you read that quote from Chamberlain again, that it's particularly remarkable that it's basically whatever Poland decides is in their vital interest to defend with their forces, we will send His Majesty His Majesty's uh, forces to to defend. So it's putting British foreign policy and the basically declaration of World War II, completely into the hands of a foreign government to declare, well, we think it's in our vital interests that you guys send your forces. (laughs) It's absolute craziness that that
0: happened. The second thing that really stood out to me was the hawkish mindset of Winston Churchill. Pat Buchanan quotes from the historian Martin Gilbert in his book, Churchill, A Life. Gilbert is a very favorable Churchill historian, has been given exclusive access to a number of archives. Gilbert writes, on May 4th, Lord Londonderry, who had recently been in Berlin and met Hitler, wrote to Churchill, I should like to get out of your mind what appears to be a strong anti-German obsession. Churchill replied that Londonderry was mistaken in supposing that I have an anti-German obsession, and went on to explain, British policy for 400 years has been to oppose the strongest power in Europe by weaving together a combination of other countries strong enough to face the bully, Sometimes it is Spain, sometimes the French monarchy, sometimes the French Empire, sometimes Germany. I have no doubt who it is now, but if France set up to claim the overlordship of Europe, I should equally endeavor to oppose them. It is thus, through the centuries we have kept our liberties and maintained our life and power. Now, if you watch Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor's most recent appearance at the Council on Foreign Relations, he actually says what's going on now is we are in a great power competition between two rivals which view the world very differently than us, meaning Russia and China. This is what it's actually about, a great power competition. So to see it not only said now, but to have been said almost a century ago, goes to show you that the high costs of war that are not paid by the politicians simply just look at these as great opportunities to extend their empire. What often goes missing, what uh, Pat Buchanan gets into, is that empires are frequently destroyed by war. So far be it for people who are saying, yeah, let's take on Japan. uh, Let's take on China and Taiwan. Let's take on Russia in Ukraine. He says there's a number of empires who have fallen because of this. The French Empire fell at Waterloo because of uh, expansionist policies. The German Empire in the First World War declared war on France and Russia and it crumbled. The Ottoman Empire was lost as a cause result of the first war. Both the Tsarist Empire of Russia and the Soviet Empire were lost uh, in wars. Um, The the stupid Soviets, they got bogged down in a war in Afghanistan. How could anyone ever fall for such a thing? The Habsburg Empire of Austria-Hungary fell after the First World War, the Japanese Empire after the Second World War, and the list goes on. But this is the sort of mindset that... We get into this sort of hawkish mindset, which allows uh, Churchill to get away uh, with historians with something like Operation Catapult, which France refers to as their Pearl Harbor, which killed 1297 French servicemen off the coast of Algeria. This operation was initiated by Churchill because he said he feared that those vessels might end up in the hands of the National Socialists if they themselves didn't kill them. Well, if we're going to be saying, well, uh, I don't care if Japan gets nuked off the face of the earth, they did Pearl Harbor to us. Well, it, that same metric would then apply to the British Empire. Terrible uh, information, but it's vitally important so we could grasp the implications. James, third lesson from Churchill, Hitler and the Unnecessary War. Yes, you
1: bring up some good points and I'll probably be touching on a couple of them in my next pick. So number three... Um, I. Uh, again, this will probably not be news to anyone, but uh, Buchanan, I think, does a good job of highlighting the nature of the atrocities that were committed on the Allied side of the equation, because, of course, they censored history textbooks. We'll We'll be happy to tell you about Nazi atrocities and Japanese imperial atrocities, but Western Allied atrocities, never. Why I never? Well, yes, of course, they happened, and Buchanan goes through and talks about how Not only did they happen, but of course they happened at the request and at the orders of Churchill himself. They went up the chain of command and it did note that there was a memo that he sent to his air chiefs later on to basically scapegoat them to make him look like, oh, no, it was your guys' decision to do all this. And um, recognizing this, um, Air Marshal Harris implies that Churchill gave the order to incinerate Dresden. Uh, Quote, I will only say that the attack on Dresden was at the time considered a military necessity by much more important people than myself. So he wasn't saying it was Churchill, but it was Churchill. Um, And uh, of course, it wasn't just the British side. It wasn't just Churchill. The Americans too played a role in adopting methods of barbarism from which earlier generations would have recoiled in horror and disgust. During World War I, we condemned the British starvation blockade before we went in, but supported it with our warships after we went in. If Churchill initiated terror bombing, America perfected it, boasted Curtis LeMay of his famous raid on Tokyo. We scorched and boiled and baked to death more people in Tokyo that night of March 9th, 10th, than went up in, vape, uh, in vapor in Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. End quote. We and the British fought for moral ends. We did not always use moral means by any Christian definition. And Churchill played the lead role in Western man's revision reversion to barbarism. So... There's definitely some uh, important uh, items in there. For people who don't know, yes, the the uh, uh, the firebombing of Tokyo, absolutely, undisputably, just a horrible, horrific war crime. But hey, it was done by the Allies, so no Nuremberg for that, right?
0: The third one that came to mind for me was Pat Buchanan really talking about the costs of war for the First World War regarding America. He says... They had sent their sons across the ocean to make the world safe for democracy, only to see the British Empire at a million square miles. They had been told it was a war to end wars, but out of it came Lenin, Stalin, Mussolini, and Hitler, far more dangerous despots than Franz Joseph of Austria-Hungary or the Kaiser of Germany. He even quotes the preface of Winston Churchill's first book after the war, ends in March of 1948. This is Churchill in The Gathering Storm. The human tragedy reaches its climax in the fact that after all the exertions and sacrifices of hundreds of millions of people and the victories of the righteous cause, we have still not found peace or security and that we lie in the grip of even worse perils than those we have surmounted. Referring to the fact that the war for Polish independence ended up with Poland in the hands of Stalin. Um, Churchill said to Stalin at Yalta once, "Um, look, we started this war to protect Poland. Can we at least have free elections in Poland? And Churchill responded, free elections like in British occupied Egypt, and then it was never brought up again. Uh, Soviet occupation after the Second World War included Albania, Bulgaria, all of Czechoslovakia, not just the Sudetenland, Hungary, East Germany, Poland, Romania, and Yugoslavia. And the numbers for uh, the world wars are just astonishing. Russia, 2 million in the first world war, between 10 and 20 million in the second. Germany, 2 million in the first, 7 million in the second. And the list just goes on and on the United Kingdom, 920,000 in the First World War, 490,000 in the Second. Many of them conscript deaths and uh, forced labor deaths. So an absolute atrocity. The costs are never discussed when people are saying things like, well, you know, we we got to be a check on China. We got to be a check on Russia. At what cost? Thomas Sowell is probably screaming. Um, that is all I have for my third takeaway. James, what's your fourth?
1: Well, let me just comment on that just to say that one death is a a tragedy, a million is a statistic. So it's easy to just get lost in those numbers. Oh, you know, between 10 and 20 million. You know, 10 million people is a rounding error in those types of figures. Each single one of those lives was a tragedy. So it's important to keep that perspective in mind when we're looking at that. All right, my fourth pick, uh, well, it's a well that I go back to over and over and over again, because it's true. Every single time you scratch the surface of one of these uh, would-be dictators, it turns out, oh, yeah, it's it's eugenicist. And Churchill, no exception, as amply documented by Buchanan here. He says, uh, writing in The Spectator in Scorn of the Cult of Churchill, Michael Lynn put on the record views of the great man that might shock Americans. Churchill was no egalitarian humanist. In 1910, he informed Prime Minister Asquith of his gnawing social concern. The unnatural and increasingly rapid rise of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among the thrifty, energetic, and superior stocks, constitute a national and race danger, which it is impossible to exaggerate. I feel that the source from which the stream of madness is fed should be cut off and sealed up before another year has passed. And he goes on to talk about the uh, Mental Deficiency Act that was advanced to sterilize the feeble-minded and other degenerate types um, under Asquith's government, um, which agreed to consider the measure. House Secretary Winston Churchill, an enthusiastic supporter of eugenics, reassured one group of eugenicists that Britain's 120,000 feeble-minded persons should, if possible, be segregated under proper conditions so that their curse died with them and was not transmitted to future generations. The plan called for the creation of vast colonies, thousands of Britons unfit would be moved into these colonies to live uh, to live out their days. And it goes on from there. Uh, this again, should not be surprising because as I say, every time we start to puncture the uh, the myth of these legendary characters, it turns out, yeah, they were horrible, eugenical people. And for the people without their heads screwed on straight in the audience, um, you should know when they talk about the feeble-minded and unfit and blah, blah, blah. These elitists believe that of course does not apply to them and their families. It applies to you and your families, whoever you are, whatever color your skin is. Um, it's just you, you riffraff, you useless eaters as the Kissingers and the Nazis like to talk about. Um, that was a, a, a common phrase amongst both of them. And also, Hey, this is ammunition for those, you know, progressive woke people in your life who are very concerned about these issues. Well, hey, look at this. Maybe we shouldn't be venerating Churchill. What do you think? What, what does that say about the narrative of World War Two, guys? This, this could be ammo that you could use in conversations in the info war with those types of people.
0: I, too, was absolutely shocked by the civilian bombing. It turns out the guy behind it was a physicist named Frederick Lindemann in his de-housing plan that he gave to Churchill. Britain initiated the bombing of Berlin, May 15th, 1940, whereas the German blitz in response was in September, the 6th of September, 1940. Pat Buchanan quotes C.P. Snow, a science advisor to the royal government, in his book *Science and Government*, the Gotkin lectures at Harvard University, he C.P. Snow is summarizing the paper laid out by Frederick Lindemann. He says, "The paper laid down a strategic policy." The bombing must be directed, especially against German working-class houses. Middle-class houses have too much space around them and are bound to waste bombs. The paper claimed that, given a total concentration of effort on the production and use of bombing aircraft, it would be possible, in larger towns of Germany, that is, those with more than 50,000 inhabitants, to destroy 50% of the houses. Second piece of evidence Buchanan uses is from J.M. Spate, the Principal Secretary for the Air Ministry, in his book, Bombing Vindicated, in 1944. Because we were doubtful about the psychological effect of propagandist distortion of the truth that it was we who started the strategic bombing offensive, we have shrunk from giving our great decision of May 11th, 1940, the publicity which it deserves. It was a splendid decision. It was as heroic, as self-sacrificing, as Russia's decision to adopt her policy of scorched earth. James, fifth lesson from Churchill, Hitler and the Unnecessary War.
1: All right, my fifth lesson is touching on something that I think you brought up earlier, but uh, towards the very, very end of the book, uh, Buchanan is reflecting on the ultimate effects of this war, the sort of the big picture, geopolitical, broad sweep of history brush um, with which we can understand these types of events. And he says that America is the last superpower because, because she stayed out of the world wars until their final acts, and because she stayed out of the alliances and the world wars longer than any other great power, America avoided the fate of the seven other nations that entered the 20th century as great powers. The British, French, German, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, Ottoman, and Japanese empires are all gone. We alone remain, we Americans, because we had men who recalled the wisdom of Washington, Jefferson, and John Quincy Adams about avoiding entangling alliances, staying out of European wars, and not going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And I certainly appreciate the point that uh, Buchanan is making here about the creation of Pax Americana, this age that we are living in of the what was, of course, the Cold War and the, all of that, but ultimately became the unipolar superpower you un- unquestioned hegemon of the world. How, how did that happen? And he does make the point that I think is a valid point to make. Yeah, I'll, we'll let you, you and those guys fight over there and then we'll come in at the end and be the decisive factor and basically uh, take the spoils of that victory. I think there's um, perhaps some more cynicism involved in that than um, Buchanan is letting on there. I certainly wouldn't say that it's, um, I, I think it was a good thing for America to stay out as long as it could, but it should have stayed out for maybe the whole war. Um, but of course, that's unspeakable, because this was the this World War Two is the, the the good war. And it's the one that everyone can agree was the right thing to happen. Well, Buchanan destroys that myth, or at least puts some pre- pretty serious punctures in that myth in this book. And I, so I would recommend it to people. And at the end of the day, it is interesting to reflect on the incredible Incredible, the almost unthinkable change in world order that people went through, not just through World War I, but then again, World War II, and the world of 1950, 1945, completely different than the world of 1900, 1910. Um, it's remarkable to think that the change that the world went through, and at what cost? Again, how many millions and millions and millions of lives had to be lost? How much blood had to be shed? all for these fancy, highfalutin ideals of king and country and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, it was about erecting a world order that wasn't really about you and protecting your benefits. It was about the benefits of the elitists who believe themselves to be of superior stock. And that's what it's about at the end of the day.
0: My final takeaway was the examples that Buchanan gives of times when he calls it when America showed restraint This is when you don't start killing civilians when you might have an excuse to, but I will take the victory when we can. He says, here are some examples of uh, the uh, historical examples of when the U.S. could have gone to war, didn't, and things turned out far better than anyone could reasonably assume compared to had a war been declared. He said, there was a coup in Prague in 1948 where the Soviets installed a puppet dictatorship there was the East German uprising of 1953 the Soviets were murdering civilians the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 where the Butcher of Bud- Budapest Nikita Khrushchev sent in the tanks number of civilians were killed there in 1964 China had project 596 where they uh, displayed their ability to have a nuclear weapon. And within a decade, Kissinger and Nixon are shaking hands with Mao. See, we can't talk to President Xi, Lloyd Austin tells us, but we can talk to Chairman Mao. Can't talk to Vladimir Putin, but we can have a formal alliance with Joseph Stalin. 1968, Czechoslovakia, Soviets come in because there's a uh, great lack of obedience to the state there. Number of civilians are killed. 1981, the solidarity movements crushed by the Soviets in Poland. And in 1983, There is a flight called KAL-007, which the Soviets shot down and killed a sitting member of Congress, Larry McDonald. Ronald Reagan did not declare war, and within a decade, the Soviet empire came crashing down. You don't have to go to war to uh, prove the point that you are a great nation with great ideals. Great amounts of wealth can come in the absence of being engaged in these conflicts. James when you were reading this, did anything come to mind as, oh my God, the same thing is happening today? What were the big parallels that jumped out to you?
1: Yeah, it's difficult for me to, to read about World War I and World War II without seeing those parallels. And I think you've touched on some of them already. It's the same type of rhetoric that's being employed now that was li- employed in the run-up to World War I and World War II. Um, and it is a similar situation, geopolitically speaking. It's been documented that this Thucydides' trap the rising power that's threatening the world hegemon, um, which was the case, obviously, with the rising Germany threatening the British hegemon back in the uh, early part of the 20th century, which led to World War One, And we are in the exact same sort of loop at the moment. And of course, since World War II, every single geopolitical boogeyman, every enemy of the U.S. State Department and any other um, foreign foreign office of any of the Western powers, the enemy is Hitler. That is The Shining—that is just the the paradigmatic example of pure, unquestioning evil. And of course, it is always portrayed that way, precisely because World War II is the good war, the just war. It was the war that we everyone can agree absolutely had to be fought, and it had to be fought in the way that it was fought. And everyone's glad. And there's nothing more to say about that. Well, there is more to say about that. So I appreciate this book for puncturing that myth, as I say, because obviously it pertains to what's happening right now with china and with uh russia and their status as boogeyman and putin is the new hitler right and she will be the new hitler once the uh the targets of the state department go firmly on him we know what this rhetoric is and that's why it's important for people to understand the actual historical roots of this
0: i want to talk about a potential white pill max boot came out with an article in foreign affairs titled what neocons got wrong march 10th of this year and how The Iraq war taught me about the limits of American power. Regime change obviously did not work out as intended. The occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq were, in fact, fiascos that exacted a high price in both blood and treasure for both the United States and even more, of course, the countries it invaded. Am I just so desperate to find a silver lining that that (laughs) actually makes me happy? Or are we actually seeing somewhat of an anti-war uh, message that just becomes at some point profitable for the elites to embrace
1: yeah well i would hope that at the very least there is a way to incentivize monetarily or any other way peace so that they we can get buy-in from the would-be elitist dictators um i'm not holding my breath for that and thank you for drawing my attention to that article because i did not see that when that came out. So I will definitely be reading that as soon as we hang up on this conversation. But you will forgive if I'm a little bit cynical and withhold my <laughs> support for Max Boot, as <laughs> people may or may not know, someone that we probably shouldn't be listening to about anything. So um, I'll, I'll have to see what his argument is. But yes, hopefully there is at the very least uh, a widespread public awareness of the madness the absolute insanity of the past couple of decades. And that is something that I think cannot be hidden or swept under the rug easily. And that's why Max Boot and others presumably have to get out in front of the parade and go, hey, no, I'm with you guys, we're, we're leading this parade. Um, because people know, absolutely know that they were lied into the Iraq war, lied stone cold straight to their face by pathological psychopathic liars. And uh, that was, uh, no one even disputes that anymore. Everyone knows the absolute insanity of the WMD myth and all of that crap that was sold to the public to generate the Iraq war. Nobody buys it. That's why the 20th anniversary kind of came and went and there wasn't a whole lot of hoopla about it because it was the shining paradigmatic moment of people transiting from that old paradigm of, well, yes, okay, the the mainstream media might get some things wrong, but they do their best, gosh darn it. Well, no, no one believes that anymore, and that is a big reason why. So I think at the very least, yes, public opinion will lead these would-be tyrants to at least give lip service to this, and that is a good thing because these wars are waged on the back of us, you and me, and people like us who have to pay for these wars with our blood. And well, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm certainly not willing to do that and or to have my children's blood shed in the name of one of these stupid ginned up wars for geopolitical dominance. Um, so they're gonna have to come up with some other way to trick us all into it or to unleash the AI, AI robot armies of the future, which once they have that, I guess, hey, who cares about the human equation?
0: So if I go to CorbettReport.com, I'm going to see things like the truth about Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and all of these things, the World War I conspiracy. I'll see World War II material, and I might be terrified if I haven't done any research in this. I go, this guy thinks all the wars are based on lies. Who who does he think he is? All of the governments throughout all of history are on the same exact page, and they like to lie, and— It just so happens that the the liars are in the government. Do you have a general theory as to why deception or falsehood is such a common practice throughout so many governments throughout such a long period of time? Any uh, theory as to why that is?
1: I do, and I posited it in uh, one of the videos that you recommended earlier, which I'm going to forget the title. I think it was A Brief History of War lies, something like that. Um, but at any rate, in that, I made the point that from the point where we went from absolute monarchical dictators to democracies, uh, th- there had to be a change in the the, the the declaration of war and the getting of the public on board with the war. In the olden days, the king could just say, well, you know, it's God has told me or... I, I've been threatened by this, or I, I don't like this, this or that, uh, that my cousin in Europe, let's go wage war on him. And people would have to, whether they liked it or not. In the age of democracies, uh, you have to have some form of public support. There has to be at least the fig leaf of a pretense that the public is on board with a war. And so that has to be done in case after case after case, by selling the public on a bunch of lies, because most people, most of the time, do not want to get up, go halfway around the world to some place they couldn't even find on a map, and start shooting strangers. That is not a normal human activity, and in order to be motivated to do that, people must be sold on a narrative, and those narratives inevitably are constructed out of lies, and hey, look, I'm just... I'm just analyzing the facts as they exist. If there was, if there was some real absolute truth to L- Libya and Gaddafi, he was truly massacring all his citizens and we had to go in there, th- then that's, that's what it is. And that's where the chips lie, but that is not the case. And time after time, after time, after time, when you look at the major military interventions of the past century, at least, you can see time and time and time again, it was based on lies so that does imply something about the types of the type of government that we are under and i did just engage in a lengthy editorial series about the pathocracy the the psychopaths that are in power that are particularly capable of looking straight into your face and lying 100% point blank lying with conviction in a cold-blooded manner i did not have relations with that woman said bill clinton and that is just that is just an example of the type of cold-blooded lies that lead to a George W Bush Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction i tell you so anyway that's that's the explanation that is why every single time we look at one of these major military interventions it is based on lies it's because war is fundamentally and a non, I want to say a non-human activity. Yes, absolutely. People have conflicts and yes, people who are personally affronted will engage in conflict and violence. That has always been a part of human history and presumably always will be. But to motivate these large scale military interventions, mobilizing millions of people to go halfway around the world to fight people they don't know, that has to be done based on narratives that are constructed by pathological liars.
0: On that one final question, you mentioned the popular uh, aphorism, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Walk us through what that means and how we could potentially use it to our benefit in fighting the globalists and the uh, military industrial interests.
1: All right. Let me throw that back at you. I, uh, just off the top of my head, I believe that is uh, popularly attributed to Stalin or is it Lenin?
0: That's who I, I've heard Stalin, but I okay. haven't seen a primary yeah. source. But and it's I'm not so sure true. I've ever
1: actually yeah. drilled down on the source of that quotation. So it may not even be true. But anyway, we all understand what it means, I hope, and the relevance of it, because it is exactly it is it is demonstrably true when you hear about some person and you hear about their life and you hear of their story and then you hear about how they were killed in some brutal and horrible fashion or something you can feel as a normal non-psychopathic human being, you can feel empathy and you can understand and you feel human emotions about that. But when you read some statistic about, oh, and then a couple hundred thousand people were killed in a firebombing overnight, that that's inhumanly that we, as human beings, we can't process and we can't calculate that. We can understand the person on the individual level. It's hard to understand hundreds of thousands of people dying in a single night. Like, what does that mean? Um, so in order to wrap our minds around that, um, oh, well, in fact, it is precisely the fact that we cannot process that that is used um, by the people in positions of power to say, you know, oh, OK, and a million people died over here and yeah, conquered. But um, there's an interesting aspect to that that uh, was pointed out recently by historian Tom Holland, who has written and talked about um, the Roman Empire, the, the ancient Greeks and all of this. And he talked about the process by which he started to realize the utter depravity of these people who he had in some sense idolized or at least spent his life um, looking at and the, uh, the, the Caesars and the uh, Alexander the Greats and other people who would not just, not just murder a million people and enslave a million more, but hold parades with tributes. Yay, I've killed a million people and look, here's all these slaves that I've captured. Yay, and people would applaud and get excited about it. Thankfully, I would say, I would say that we are in a position in human civilization where we do not any longer applaud such behavior and go, yay, you know, a million people, blood uh, spilling on the streets, kill those babies and children and women, yay. We understand that to be morally reprehensible in most situations. So, of course, they have to hide it by any means possible by putting out these statistics that are incomprehensible as nameless, faceless things. It's why the Gulf War was... Um, was so strategically managed as a television event with the dramatic photos of their video footage of the uh, the smart precision bombings and you would see of course the of course it's the green uh, cast of the the sort of the 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 night vision um, camera that's grainy and out of focus and you just see a bomb sort of go into some building and And then there's just an explosion and you don't you cannot as a human being, you can't connect that to the death of women and children and innocent people on the other side of that. And they take advantage of that. And so when we can connect this back down to the human level and tell the stories of people who have had their lives shattered by these grand wars for geopolitical dominance, uh, I think we can connect to the other non psychopathic people who are the vast, 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 vast majority of humanity, and we can overthrow the parasitical elitists who pretend to rule over us. Um, I think that is the ultimate hope in this, and that's, that's my white pill, is that there, there really is many, many, many more of us than there are of them, and I think we can use that to our advantage.
0: Thanks to everyone for watching. Keith and I don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Check out CorbettReport.com. Become a member for just one dollar a month. James Corbett, thank you for your time. Thank you.